Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Daniel. Last week we kicked off our summer series titled Living for God in a Pagan World, Life Lessons from the Book of Daniel. Uh, Last Sunday we laid a foundation concerning the context that surrounds Daniel's deportation from Babylon, uh, in, uh, from, to Babylon from Judah. And we discovered in last Sunday's message that it was Yahweh. And by the way, for those of you who are new to the church, when you hear me use that term, Yahweh, that is actually the name that God has given us uh, to identify him. He gave it to Moses at the burning bush. Some people uh, pronounce it Jehovah. All right, but Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, I like to use his name when, uh, when possible because God is not his name. All right, uh, Yahweh is the true and living God. All right, but anyway, we discovered that it was Yahweh himself who was behind Babylon's assault on Judah, and it happened because of their continual refusal to repent of sin and to worship. Yahweh exclusively. Furthermore, although Daniel and those like him had been faithful to Yahweh when they were there in Judah, uh, it was the overflow of the judgment on Judah that impacted them, causing them then to be deported to Babylon where they were forced. It wasn't their free choice. They were forced to live there in the midst of paganism. And I really think that this point that I'm making here is very, very important for us to keep in mind. That it was not Satan, and it was not Nebuchadnezzar. They may have had a role to play, but they were not the authors of this deportation. They were not the authors of this judgment. Yahweh himself brought this about upon his people because of their continuous rebellious heart. And he had them, many of uh, the Jews, uh, deported there into Babylon. Uh, Part of it was judgment against them, and part of it was to use people like Daniel to reflect his glory in the midst of the spiritual darkness that was Babylon. Now, one of the truths we took from this last week is that if God's people are going to live for him, we are going to have to do it like Daniel did. We're going to have to do it in the midst of paganism. In other words, since the entrance of sin into humanity, there has, mark this down, never been a golden age of righteousness from which the world has gotten increasingly more wicked. When the fall took place, the world immediately went from innocence to wickedness and has universally maintained that position ever since. Meaning what? Meaning that the only good that comes from this world comes by way of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit rescuing sinners from the grip of sin where they are then tasked to live in the midst of a fallen world for his glory and the benefit of others. I just want to stop there and say this. Church, Christians, do you understand that you were saved out of this pagan world, but you were saved to continue to live in this pagan world for the glory of God? Do you understand that? I hope you do. Because it's really important that we grasp that. We are called to live in this pagan world for his glory and for the benefit of many others that he wants to bring out of this pagan world as well. Until Christ comes again, ushering in his righteous kingdom on earth, we are going to have to live in the midst of paganism if we're going to live for God in this world. Well, today we begin looking more deeply into his story Um, as he goes from being just another deportee to eventually being one of the leading government officials in the land of Babylon. Today's text that we're going to be looking at uh, tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, 
the king of Babylon, wanted the best of the captives of Judah. He wanted them to be immersed into Babylonian culture because he wanted to use them in various positions of public service in his kingdom. And so to do this required a re-education process for those captives. Perhaps we would call it indoctrination of all things Babylonian and thus pagan. Now, each week we're dealing with a whole chapter. And so I won't always read the whole chapter because some of them are quite lengthy. So I'm encouraging you now, I'll be encouraging you each week to go ahead and read that chapter in advance before we come uh, to, to look into that chapter. Uh, today, I will probably read most of the chapter, but I'm going to do it breaking it up according to the points that are being made along the way. So let's begin uh, in our reading with verse 3, Daniel chapter 1, and eventually we'll read all the way to 21. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, uh, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, otherwise, uh, otherwise known as the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that, he, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Father, I pray in these few moments that we have that your spirit will empower the communication to be clear and on point, and I pray that you would help each one of us to, to hear and to receive that which you brought us here or connected us with this time to receive, that we may grow to know you in a greater way, to see you in a bigger way, and to make choices to walk with you that will empower us to become more and more like Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Father, may this time of teaching be one that does bring glory to you and is benefit for all who hear it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, the Babylonians, if they're going to make these captives fit for use as officials in the Babylonian government, then they're going to have to re-educate them. They're going to have to cause them to lay aside their homeland and their old ways and their old thoughts and become Babylonians, uh, so to speak. And so uh, the re-education program consisted of three life-altering changes. Take note of them. Number one was a change of identity, and primarily this was done through the giving of new names, and we're going to go into that a little bit more deeper here in just a moment. But the re-education program also included a change of worldview. Uh, so these deportees were going to be immersed into Babylonian culture and learning. And then a change of lifestyle. And there were probably various facets to that. But the one that's recorded here in the Bible for us is a change of diet. And we'll find out in a few moments why that was something that was important. All right? So as we think about all of these, a change of identity, of worldview, of lifestyle, no doubt all of these efforts to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends with Babylonian ways it's, there's no doubt that all of that was egregious to them. All of that was an offense to them. All of that was something they would have rather not had to, uh, to deal with because it just, it, it just came against their Jewish sensibilities. But as we discover when we read the text, there was one specific issue that was more egregious than the others. So let's break that down. First, the change of identity. Now, unlike today, uh, names in that day and time and in that culture meant something uh, that was very profound and deep. Uh, uh, 
our names still may mean something, but typically we don't choose them for our kids because of that reason. We just choose them because that's what we like, you know? I mean, at least that's what Connie and I did. We didn't go into any big profound uh, study about the, the, the meaning of the names of the, our boys. We just gave them names that we, we liked and thought were cool, right? We went together with the last name of Rose. Uh, but, um, you know, in that day and time, uh, names were more important than that. Now, Daniel in Hebrew means this, Yahweh is my judge. That's the meaning of his name. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, his name meant who is like Yahweh. And Azariah, his name meant Yahweh is my help. Now, as you can clearly see, uh, their Hebrew names were all associated with Yahweh, who was and is the singular God of the Israelites. In like manner, their new Babylonian names then were associated with Babylon's gods. To Daniel, his name was changed to Belteshazzar. And the uh, first part of that, Bel, was one of the gods of Babylon. He was the god of order and destiny. And Belteshazzar meant Bel, protect his life. So... The call was upon a pagan deity to protect Daniel. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Now, Aku was the moon god of the Babylonians. To Mishael was given the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku. Now, it's just fascinating. I only saw this actually this morning when I was reviewing my notes. But Mishael's name, both in Hebrew and in Babylonian, meant the same thing, basically. They both came down to who is like the God that the name represents. In Hebrew, who is like Yahweh. In the Babylonian sense, who is like Aku. I just find that interesting that they kept that, that same significance. And then Azariah was given the name Abednego. And that meant servant of Nebo. And Nebo was the patron god of art, writing, and vegetation. Now, in my way of seeing things, this is a very serious thing. To be forced to receive a name that changes your name that was linked with your true and living God to a name that links you now with the false pagan gods of Babylon. Uh, I think that's very egregious, and personally I would lean toward this being the most egregious demand that Babylon made upon Daniel and his friends, forcing them to accept new names that were clearly pagan in nature. However, if we took that position, we would be wrong. Uh, because we find in the text that Daniel and his friends accepted their Babylonian names without any fuss at all. We move on then to the change of worldview, and we recognize that this was all about an education program in the philosophy, in the religion, and in the sciences of Babylon. And of course, this is where your very heavy indoctrination would take place, and they had to endure this indoctrination for three years. Now, you would think, perhaps, that Daniel and his friends uh, would have resisted this indoctrination, that they perhaps would have worked at making it hard for their teachers to work with them. But again, when we read the text, we find that Daniel and his friends, they attended the classes, they did their studies, they took their tests, and in fact, we discover that they worked so hard at mastering the material that they excelled above all the other captives who were being put through this same re-education uh, program. They grasp the Babylonian knowledge and culture better than anyone else. 
And I want to stop there for just a moment to say that I find it very interesting that Daniel and his friends were thoroughly indoctrinated with pagan education, and they excelled at their grasp of that education, but it did not win them over to pagan thinking, nor did it damage their faith in Yahweh. That's fascinating. You know, we send Christian young people from our churches off to secular schools. And so many times, not always. In fact, I'm looking out at some who went to secular schools and you're still with the stuff. And that's good. But so many of our young people come back and they don't even believe anymore. I wonder what the problem is with that. You don't have to answer. Just think about it. But here, these were indoctrinated, and they, they embraced it to learn. But it did not change their thinking as far as what was error and what is true, and it did not damage their faith in Yahweh. And, of course, that is highly unusual. And let me tell you what that tells me. And this really kind of speaks maybe back to the problem in our day and time. It tells me that their parents did not leave their spiritual development to the Sabbath school because they didn't have Sunday school. They had Sabbath school. And they did not leave the spiritual indoctrination of their children to the youth group that met at their synagogue. Now, there's nothing wrong with Sunday school. That's a good thing if we have it. Nothing wrong with the youth group as long as it's biblically based and ours is. Nothing wrong with that either. Those are all good supplements to what should be going on in the home. But at the end of the day, if a child is going to grow up with a Christian worldview and that worldview is going to stand the test of time, it's going to be because, be because mom and dad in the home taught them and modeled that life for them. It's obvious, I think, that Daniel and his friends, their parents, discipled them. Before the, the war came, before the exile came, before they were forced to go to Babylon, they had grown up in homes where there was a strong biblical Old Testament Jewish um, form of teaching such that it laid a foundation that could withstand three years of indoctrination. I think that's something to be noted. Now, by the way, I just want to tell you that in August, Pastors Brett and Adam are going to do a four-week series on family discipleship. Convenient, huh? I would recommend to all of you parents, and I would recommend to all of you grandparents, that you make sure you're here in the month of August to hear what they have to say, because I think what they're going to present from God's Word is going to be invaluable to answering the problem of our kids growing up and leaving the faith. It's not a guarantee, but I guarantee you this, that those who are discipled well in the home, as well as in the church, stand a much greater chance of growing up and being uh, the man and the woman God wants them to be uh, when they leave the home. Basically, indoctrination in Babylonian worldview uh, was not the most egregious demand that was made. And that brings us then to change of lifestyle. Now we find in the text that the king was very generous with these young men. He wanted them to have the best nutrition that Babylon could provide. And so he gave a portion of his very food, the very food that he was served and that he ate. You've got to know that Nebuchadnezzar had the best, Right? He gave the best of fine meats and fine wines. And he made this available to those who were going through this re-education program. And for me, this would be the least egregious. This would be the least. I mean, yeah, bring it on. I'll take some fine cheese and some fine uh, meat and some fine wine. Okay, sure, let's do that. Uh, but we find that this was the straw that broke the camel's back, as they say, for Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends were willing to receive new pagan names. And they were willing 
to participate in pagan education. And we say, why? Well, the reason why is because Yahweh had no direct law against those things. But when it came to eating pagan food, well, God had some direct things to say about that. And so uh, there was a clear violation of God's law that they were not willing to step over that line. Let's look at verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, the word defiled there, that's a, that's a very, very strong word. And I think that leads us to ask the question, what was so defiling about choice meats and good wine? How is that defiling? Well, for a Gentile, it wasn't. There was no defiling for the Gentile. But for a Jew under the Mosaic law, it was a very clear violation of God's commands. Uh, the problem was that the food Nebuchadnezzar was eating was considered unclean by the law. And there are two specific reasons why it was considered unclean. Let's take a look at those. Number one, it was unclean because it was not kosher. It was not kosher. Many of you have heard that word, right? The word kosher means fit or proper. Okay? Now let's think about that first word, fit. In Leviticus chapter 11, we find that God identified that there were certain foods that were fit for his people, and there were certain foods that were not fit for his people. And if you go there and read through it, you'll find lists of, of what was fit and what wasn't. Just a quick example, uh, out of Leviticus 11, we find that cow and, and lamb and goat, those were fit. You could, you could eat that, no problem. However, camel, I don't know, why would anybody want to eat a camel? I mean, I don't know. Those are ugly animals. They're so ugly, they're cute, actually. But camel, rock badger, rabbit, and pig. <laughs> Pork, these were not fit. And if you go on and continue to study, you'll find lists for fresh and seawater creatures, fit and unfit. You'll find lists for fowl. Certain birds were okay, and certain ones were not. You'll even find a list for insects. For those who like chocolate-covered ants, right, or whatever, grasshoppers. I mean, there were things that were fit and things that weren't. Now, I'm not going to go through and identify that, as interesting as it may be, because it's got nothing to do with what we're looking at here today. But, except to say that there were foods, by law, that were fit, and there were foods that were not. And then there was this issue of proper preparation. There were foods that were fit but could only be eaten if they were prepared in a certain way. And again, I'm not going to go deep into that, but just as an example, for example, all blood had to be drained or cooked out of the meat before it was eaten. So those of you in here who like your steak bloody raw, be happy that you're a Gentile and that you don't live under the Mosaic law because that was forbidden. No go, right? Also, you could not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Now, a couple of things. Kid. We're not talking about human children. Most of y'all use that term all the time. My kid, my kid. Well, we're not talking about that kind of kid. We're talking about a young, a young goat or a young sheep, okay? Something like that. And the cooking of it in its mother's milk, there are probably several explanations, but there is one uh, out there about it having something to do with uh, some type of pagan ritual practice. And so whatever the reason was, you weren't allowed to do that. That would, that would break God's law. And eventually, that particular law morphed into um, uh, an extra law that said you can't serve meat and milk together in the same meal. And we Gentiles all want to know why. Why? Because we don't understand that. That just absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, what 
Why was it forbidden to have a glass of milk with your morning sausage or your uh, breakfast ham? You know, of course, those two were off limits anyway, but, but why? And, and, I, and the real point here is that the why of it all isn't relevant. What is relevant is that these were laws that the Jews were obligated to obey. And if they did not obey them, it would then render them as ceremonially unclean. And you say, well, big whoop. Well, for them, it was a big whoop. Because if you became ceremonially unclean, you were not allowed to worship. And you couldn't engage in worship again until you had went through some form of cleansing and had been re-identified as ceremonially clean. So for them, it was a big deal. To become unclean would be to put yourself at odds with God. And so this issue of kosher, what is fit, what is not fit, and even what is fit, is it prepared according to the law? That's one of the reasons. The second reason is that the king's food was offered to Babylonian idols. Now, the Babylonians were polytheistic, meaning that they worshipped a plurality of gods. As we've already seen, several of the gods being named as part of the names of the, of the Hebrews who had their names changed. Nebuchadnezzar, he uh, favored Marduk. And we talked a little bit about him last week. So the bottom line is, is that before the king was served his food, it would be offered to or it would be dedicated to Marduk. So for Daniel and his friends to eat this food would be blasphemy because in doing so they would be acknowledging whether, even if it wasn't internally, externally it would be viewed this way, that they were acknowledging the legitimacy of these false gods. This would then make them guilty of idol worship. And that then would put them at odds with Yahweh. And so, change of name. Education in the Babylonian ways. These were concessions that Daniel and his friends were willing to make. But to go against God's law, his clearly articulated law, that they would not do. And that leads us then to verse 8b through verse 10. The last part of verse 8 says that Daniel then, when he found out that this was what was going on, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now let's Remember again that Daniel and his friends were willing to go along with the demands that did not put them at odds with God. And this we would call issues of preference. Really hope you'll tune in and listen to these next few remarks because these are really important. They were willing to go along with the things that did not put them at odds with God. And that way of thinking and acting is all about preference. Let's think about their preferences for a minute. I think, hands down, they would have preferred to stay in Judah. Do you agree? They would have rather been in Judah than in Babylon. They would have preferred to, remain, to maintain their Hebrew names. That, that was their preference. That's what they would have wanted to do. And they would have preferred to forego Babylonian re-education. However, under the pain and threat of death, they were willing to let their preference fall by the wayside. But that's where they drew the line. Daniel and his friends held a conviction. A conviction uh, that they would not compromise when it came to the clear commands of Yahweh, their God. And so we find them at this point then uh, taking a bold and resolute stand. Now, I want to stop again and bring this into our context today. I believe this issue of preference and conviction is an area in which many Christians get tangled up. I find that many Christians 
take what should be a conviction and make it a preference. And they take what should be a preference and they make it a conviction. And you say, Pastor, well, what's the difference? Well, let's study that. Preference is subjective. It's subjective. The things that we prefer are based on what we like or don't like. And what I like or don't like might be very different from what you like or don't like. And there we have our preferences. Uh, Preference is not absolute. Can you say that with me? Preference is not absolute. So, let's illustrate that. I prefer steak over liver. I don't know how you feel about it, but that's how I feel about it. However, if the choice is liver over starvation, well, then I'll eat liver because I prefer to live. See, preference. Conviction, on the other hand, is objective. It is based on absolute truth. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what I like or don't like. That's not the test of conviction. You got it? I like living. I don't much like dying. But if I am commanded to deny Jesus as the Christ and swear my allegiance to another or die, then my conviction of who Jesus is must stand even if it costs me my life. There's a lot of things I'm willing to let go by the wayside. And there are a few things I can't. Because it's based on absolute truth and has nothing to do with what I like or don't like. Daniel and his friends, they understood the difference between preference and conviction. And they stood, ad, uh, they stood resolute on their conviction that God's commands must be upheld even in the face of the threat of death. That brings me to verse 9 and 10. Let's look at it. Because of all this, we find... God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs, because he's already now requested, don't make us defile ourselves, right? And God gave him favor, but nonetheless, verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you endanger my head with the king by the request. Again, we find that the the chief of the eunuchs, directly answerable to the king for these young men's development, um, he had a certain compassion for Daniel and his friends, a certain care for them. But still, at the end of the day, uh, being accountable directly to the king and, um, and understanding that there was a high possibility that this may go south. And if it goes south and they stand before the king three years from now, because this is what the request was. It was a request for three years. Don't make us defile ourselves. Let us do something else for three years. That's where it started. And his fear is, you're going to stand before the king, and you're not going to be in the same shape these other guys are, and he's going to want to know why. And when I tell him I took the advice of a captive, he's going to cut my head off. So I'm sorry, Daniel. I like you, and I'd love to, uh, I'd love to give you what you want, but I can't. So we find in verses 11 through 14 that Daniel took another approach. We find here that he petitioned then the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over him. Now this time, Daniel doesn't ask for a wholesale departure from the king's order. He now changes it to just a brief period of testing. Notice verse 12. Test your servants for 10 days, Daniel said. This is all at the very beginning. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let your appearance... Our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. I want you to take notice of how Daniel approached the matter. This is so important. I hope you're not getting sleepy. 
Daniel and his friends were resolute. They would not defile themselves with the king's food. That was an absolute. However, they also understood the tenuous nature of the situation. They could see that what they needed to do and wanted to do and in fact would do is going to put other people in great danger and be problematic for them. So they were compassionate back the other way. And that's why he went from, don't make us do this for three years, to how about the first 10 days? Because then you got plenty of time to recover if it didn't go well, right? So let us, let us do it our way for 10 days. And I believe this is another place where we need to step back and consider our own personal behaviors in our own pagan world. I believe it's really important that if we're going to live successfully for God in a pagan world, then we must learn to be diplomatic in our approach with the world rather than bullish and brash. Man, I want to just go off on this one. Because I'll tell you what I see. I see in far too many professing Christians that when the culture comes up against them and they don't like what they're, what's coming up against them, they get arrogant, they get mean, they get hostile, they become very bullish and very brash. Am I being bullish and brash right now? And what that basically does is it gets the hair up on the back of the pagan world. Just like it would get anybody's hair up when somebody comes at them in a bullish, brash kind of way. Right? And now the fight's on. Who's got the sharper claws? Who can go the distance in the court? Who can win the battle in the, 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 the realm of public opinion? And then it just becomes all of this, yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm going to tell you, that is not good for the kingdom of God. That does not win souls to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you something else. It doesn't win the fight either. The world just keeps on in its paganism, and we just get more frustrated. Can I get a witness on that at all? Is there anybody here brave enough to say, Pastor, I think you're right? Because I know there's some of you who think I'm wrong. I'm not saying that we lay down and, and take it. I'm just simply saying we need to learn to be a little bit more diplomatic. Look at Daniel. You find no demands here. Daniel instead made a civil, well-reasoned, humble request. And what happened? Well, verse 14. So he, the steward, listened to them in this matter, and did exactly what they asked for. He tested them for 10 days. You know, my mother coached me many times with this phrase. She said to me, son, you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. And have you ever heard that before? Yeah. And have you ever said that to your kids? Yeah. It's a fact. Well, let's move on to verses 15 through 20. Let's look at how this test of Daniel's convictions played out. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter, not meaning me, like me being fat, but they were more healthy, is what that means, in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward saw success. So he took away their food. Uh, he took away uh, their food uh, and, and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. What we find here is that God allowed Daniel and his friends to be tested in the midst of this pagan mindset. And with God's enablement, it was discovered then that the direction that Daniel and his friends wanted to take was better than the direction that the pagans had planned. And that then became the realization that there was something different about Daniel. And there was something very much special about his God. Verse 17, 
As for these four youths, notice this, God gave them. Who gave them? God gave them. God intervened. God interjected himself. God gave them learning and skill in all literature to include pagan literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. This is now three years down the road. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in all of his kingdom. Now, I don't know if we really want to put a percentage on that. I think that's more of a, a figure of speech. I don't think he actually measured it and said, oh, you're ten times better. It's, we say that all the time. You're ten times better or you're whatever. I think that's more what it is. But nonetheless, they were found to be better, markedly better. And so, verse 21, and Daniel was there till the first year of King Cyrus, meaning that Daniel served in the government for many decades. Over my 30 years in pastoral ministry, I have observed so many Christians who uh, do everything in their power to cocoon themselves. To cocoon themselves in a Christian bubble. Everything around them, they want it to be Christian. From their barber, Lord, I can't have a pagan cutting my hair. To their doctor, to their mechanic, to their dog setter. So many, it seems that they do everything that they can to separate themselves from the world that they live in, which is pagan. Man, I hate time limits. Mark it down. That is not God's will. That is not God's will. To be cocooned in a Christian bubble. You say, well, Pastor Mike, what about what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians six seventeen? Well, what did he write? He said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. It's a quotation from Isaiah 52, 11. And the question then comes, well, isn't Paul instructing us to turn away from everything pagan in the world and have nothing to do with it? Well, the answer to that question is really yes and no. Yes, we are to separate ourselves from the sinful practices that are part and parcel of the pagan world, like idolatry. Right? We're not to, be, we're not to worship other gods. We're to keep ourselves completely reserved to Yahweh. Uh, immorality. We're not supposed to be either in the mind, in the heart, or with the body doing all kinds of immoral stuff, sensual stuff. Yeah, we're, we're to put away thieving and we're to put away lying. So in that sense, yes. But no, as it relates to putting yourself in a Christian bubble so that you have no contact with those who are still trapped in paganism. Do we not understand that we have a mandate to go to the world, which is pagan, to preach the gospel to all peoples. And if everybody you associate with is a professing Christian, then tell me, how exactly are you going to do that? Mark 16, 15. Matthew 28, 19. Acts 1, 8. They all tell us we are saved we are saved out of paganism, but we are required to continue to live in paganism in the sense that we live in this world, we participate in this world, and we allow our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be seen by others, and when they say, man, you are a weird duck, what's up with you? Well, I'd love to have lunch and share it with you. I don't know. 
Am I going to have a job when this week's over? Brett, I'm not sure. But yeah, we're to stop living like the world. We are to be different. We are to be separate. We are to be a peculiar people. We also have a clear calling to be in the world, to bear witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then to disciple to maturity those who come out of the world to become part of the family of God. Well, let's get to the bottom line. As you can see, I saved all the truth points for last. Never done that before. There's always a first. And here we go. Truth point number one. These all come out of what has been spoken of here today. Truth point number one. God placed Daniel in the midst of paganism. It was God that put him there. God placed him in the midst of paganism to be a light for righteousness that would lead some out of their darkness into his glorious light. And so I ask all of you Christians in the room, and all of you Christians who are watching online, I ask you, where is your light shining bright? In your Christian home? In your Christian church? In your Christian school? That's great. It certainly has to shine bright there. But it must shine in the paganism that surrounds those bastions of godliness. It's got to be shown there too. Truth point number two. Daniel and his friends had a strong scriptural foundation that empowered them to sit under pagan indoctrination without losing their faith or ability to discern truth from error. I ask all of you, do you have a strong biblical foundation that can withstand the onslaught of pagan ideals and pressures? What about your children? Are you giving them that strong foundation? What about your grandchildren? Grandma? Grandpa? Are you working with your children to give your grandchildren a strong biblical foundation? Let me tell you this. Both being discipled, submitting yourself to someone more mature to be discipled, and discipling others really is a key to building that unassailable foundation. Truth point number three. Daniel rightly discerned the difference between conviction and preference. This enabled him to know when he could go along to get along and when he had to take a resolute stand. Making what should be preference into conviction tends to hinder one's ability to exercise godly influence on those who need the benefit of your spiritual light in their lives. It tends to needlessly push them away. Making what should be conviction into preference weakens the effectiveness of your testimony, bringing confusion to those who need to see the strength of your commitment to Christ and to his words. We need to learn the difference and then learn how to relate appropriately. Truth point number four. Jesus has called his disciples to take his gospel to all people groups who by nature are pagan because they are not yet Christ followers. Inherent to his call is his commitment to empower you to speak and to live his gospel well. It is his plan for sinners to be rescued from the curse of sin through the life and testimony of those that he saves. Christian, the call on your life is to be like Daniel. To be one who stands firmly in gospel truth, does not create unnecessary, or unnecessary barriers with the lost, unnecessary barriers, and experiences the miraculous power of God to win and disciple Christ-rejecting pagans into the kingdom and family of God. Now with that said, let me say this, that it, an evangelism training is coming up on Wednesday, June 14th at 6.30 p.m. Let's say that together. Evangelism training, Wednesday, June 14th, right here. And you can see Pastor Brett after this service at the Next Steps table for any questions or more information. And finally, I close with this. 
to anybody who is here in this room or is watching online who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I tell you that Jesus is the one who came from heaven, took on humanity, went to the cross, took sin upon himself. He died there in agonizing pain as the wrath of God was being poured out upon him. And there he paid sin's debt. And then he rose from the dead. He conquered death and hell and sin so that those who turn to him, who are willing to turn from self and turn from sin and embrace him by faith so that they can receive new life, eternal life that is like his. I know that there must be questions in people's minds. And I would be more than happy to help answer those questions using God's word. So if you have questions, my contact information is on the screen. You can reach out by email, by phone, by text. At the end of the service, I'll be here at the front. My wife will be here as well as one of our elders. We're here to help and to pray with you and to counsel you in any way that we can. So if you have a spiritual need, please do not just walk out and leave that need unmet. But come forward, make your need known, and let's turn to the Lord God who can meet every and all needs. Father, I thank you for this opportunity today to share some of these things from the book of Daniel. And I pray that you will use them not only today or this afternoon, but tomorrow and throughout the week to remind us of what is important and to push us into the areas in which we need to go so that we can grow and mature and be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Lord, for those who are here today who need counsel about the gospel, who have questions, Lord, give them boldness, I pray, that they would come and ask, and then, Lord, give us success in explaining the gospel well to them, that they may open their heart and receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Lord, whatever our needs are, may we turn to you, for you are the only source. And we will find there the peace and the strength that we look for. Glorify yourself in this, I pray. Benefit many people in this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.